You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me, the, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll spend some time reflecting on this particular passage this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord, this morning as we come now to your word, I pray that you would make us into the type of listeners who would hear and who would respond by offering up our worship to Jesus as these wise men did. Father, help us to see Jesus Christ, our Savior, our hope, who in this portion of Matthew's gospel is just a young child, and help us to see him for who he is and who he will become for us and for our salvation. Father, make us into a people who are loyal to and laying hold of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if anyone in here has been to Cologne, Germany. Has anyone been to Cologne? Maybe? Oh, I see some hands. Well, if you're in Cologne, Germany, you'll likely wander around the city, and you'll see what is still the highest uh, building, the great cathedral of the city. If you've been inside of it, it's a marvel of architecture. And after a while, you'll learn that it was... the The construction of it was started in 1248 and has had numerous additions. You'll learn that from 1880 to 1890, it was the tallest building in the whole entire world. And eventually, as you wander around, your eye will lay hold of this golden shrine that you won't be able to look away from, and it will attract all of your attention. And as you go and look at this shrine and you read about what's inside of it, you will find this is the Shrine of the Three Kings. And inside this shrine is thought to believe the bones of the wise men. Now, that might sound like sort of funny, primitive superstition, and there's a reason to believe maybe these aren't the bones of the wise men. However, 
These bones first came to Cologne, Germany in 1164 and were put in one of this holding, which has obviously been glorified over time. However, they came to Cologne, Germany in 1164, but they were first taken of possession prior to uh, Emperor Constantine. And so they were initially stationed at another church, they were moved to another church, and eventually they are sent to Cologne, Germany, the bones of the wise men. Listen, there's no shortage of fascination we have with these particular characters we find in the story. And it's not just a fascination in sort of our, our religious background. Uh, Marco Polo, the explorer, claimed that he saw the tomb of the Magi in, in Tehran, Iran in 1270. Various traditions have, stories have popped up around the wise men. They've been given three different names. However, there's no guarantee that there's only three wise men. In fact, some churches in the East would say there's actually eight of these particular wise men. All we know is that they give three distinct gifts. And it's interesting, I'm glad Alan didn't choose to sing We Three Kings of Orient Are, because they're not referred to anywhere here as kings. And in fact, wise men isn't even necessarily the the best translation. The Greek word is magi. These are some enigmatic figures of the Bible. But who are they? And we have to ask ourselves, Matthew's gospel is the only gospel to include this story about the Magi. Why does he include them in this particular passage? Matthew has already made clear, if you weren't here the past two weeks, we looked at the birth of Jesus, but then we, the first week we started this sermon series, the first week of Advent, we looked at the lineage of Jesus, and we saw that he is certainly from the line of David. He's a descendant of great David. In fact, he is presented as great David's greater son, the king that is going to sit on David's throne through eternity. He has finally appeared. He's going to reign as king. And God's people knew that this great king that would come after David would reign not just over Israel, but would reign over the entire earth, over all nations. And here we are now in this passage, seeing these magi from the east come to visit. And what Matthew is making clear in this passage is that because Jesus has appeared, and at the arrival of Jesus, those who are far off, now are being drawn near. But in this passage, he's also making something dangerously clear for you and for me. It's not just that in Jesus Christ's first appearance that those who are far off are going to be brought near. The nations will come to worship Jesus. He's also hinting at a theme that's going to build throughout this gospel and a theme that I fear you're going to see in your life. It's not just those who are far off who are brought near, but it's very possible that those who are the most near might turn out to be the most far off. So this is what we're going to look at this morning, the far off being brought near and the near actually being far off. Where do we see this in this passage? First, let's look at the arrival of Jesus and see how it means that those who are formerly known as far off are now being brought near. Where do we see this? Well, we see this in the visitors to Jesus. Who visits Jesus? Well, the English Standard Version that we have read here says that there are wise men from the east. As I already said, the Greek word is magoi, and so this is why they're often referred to as the magi. And in some senses, magi is a better translation to get to the root of, of who these people are. If you think of the word magi, you can probably hear the root of another English word, magicians. You know, the, the magi, we don't know a ton about them, but we know this. We know they're from, uh, they're, they're from Persian heritage, from the Assyrian sort of background. They're likely astrologers and fortune tellers, things that were despised by Israel, but they were also likely scholars, people engaging not just with the stars, but with math and science as we know it. This was a time 
sort of like virtually all time before the 17th century, when everyone was not just a mathematician, but was also a philosopher. Think of Pythagoras. He wasn't a mathematician. He was a philosopher. You know, think of uh, Isaac Newton. He, you know, has these great scientific discoveries. He's also spending all this time reading the stars and messing around with alchemy, how to turn things into gold. Uh, th this is a world in which uh, the lines between sort of hard sciences and uh, the sort of mystical are blurred. Maybe a world that's more true to reality as we know it. I'm not sure. But these men would have been regularly engaging with what was going on in nature and going on in the stars, and from that trying to get wisdom for society as to how to live. This was very, very common, not just in this Persian culture, but in all cultures. You would find it even when you read Julius Caesar, right? Uh, what's the famous line? Remember the Ides of March. Who, who gives that line? Is it not the seer? Who's, who's seen some, he has some sort of vision, he's, he's relaying this sort of uh, mystical prophecy to, to Caesar. Beware of the Ides of March. Now, it's interesting, who are these magi? We have to understand this if we're going to make any sense of this passage. And the first time, actually, we have written evidence of this word magi being used, or this class of people uh, being discussed, is actually during the reign of King Darius of Assyria. We know that these were some Zoroastrian-style priestly class. And you may remember that, that Darius is mentioned as well in our Bible, in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, I think this is incredibly interesting, but I think this is why Matthew is including these magi in his story, and I hope this will change the way you see the, the, the wise men, or the three kings, however they're portrayed in the various nativity sets. If you remember... Daniel, uh, the, the nation was brought into exile by the Babylonian Empire. And what, the way in which they did this is they would take the best and the brightest, the people of influence, they'd take their children, and they would bring them to Babylon and put them into Babylon University, sort of some great, uh, some, some great academic environment where they could make foreign nations, especially the elite, especially the people who have access to the halls of power, they can make them become the type, the people who think like Babylonians. This was a brilliant way in which they sort of uh, exiled their people and took over nations and destroyed nations. They declared sort of intellectual war and brainwashed their children. You may remember that Daniel and others are sent to Babylon University in this Babylonian exile. And I can't help but think that it's quite interesting that the first sort of evidence, written evidence we have of this class of people known as the Magi happens to be recorded around the similar time that Daniel would have likely been uh, studying with these people. The Magi would have been his teachers. They would have been his professors. They would have been teaching him how Babylonians think and how to read the stars and read the skies. And yet Daniel, in a mysterious sense, in the midst of being imprisoned and oppressed, in the midst of sort of intellectual warfare being uh, declared on him, alienating him and estranging him from his family, Daniel, in a mysterious way, becomes a teacher to these particular priests. And so what I find incredibly interesting to think about is here we have these magi, maybe three, maybe eight, likely something like a priestly class of the Persian religion at the time, likely people who study the greatest of wisdom of all cultures, try to read the stars, try to read the signs of the times. And here we are, these people who have brainwashed Israelites in the past, but now have no choice but to pass on not just the greatest of Persian wisdom, but also the wisdom of Daniel and God's people who were brought into exile and lived among them. Here we have this priestly class of this quote-unquote pagan religion, 
that have had tremendous access for hundreds of years to, the, to some of God's workings in this world, the Magi. This is who they are, but how do they get to see Jesus as this young child, Jesus? Well, they're guided by the stars. And there's all kinds of way too much uh, literature, in my humble opinion, about what these stars might be. In fact, Jupiter and Saturn, around the year that Jesus was born, seemed to have sort of uh, their orbits had seemed to overlap three times. And there's some theories that maybe the sign, the star that was out of place was these stars overlapping. Uh, other ideas are that this is a comet that, that goes by the Earth, and this is the star that they see. I, I have no idea what the nature of the star is, and quite frankly, I'm not altogether that interested. But they see some sign in the star, some sign in the sky that seems off. And they say, a king must be born. They follow the star, and they head to where they presume that king to be born, in Jerusalem, to, the, to Herod's temple. My guess is this. And again, this is a guess, but I think we have good reason to believe it. These magi, these magi are the greatest thinkers of Babylon, and they've been greatly influenced by God's people who were in exile. And you may remember that Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, has a series of prophecies that come after the whole lion's den stories, prophecies that are left for us to wander and, and ponder, mysterious prophecies, one of which is the 70 weeks which are found in Daniel 9. And my hunch is these magi are men who are very familiar with the best of these prophecies and of these wisdom. And my hunch is when Daniel prophesies about 77s or 70 weeks of years, my hunch is that these magi are men who have been wrestling through what this meant, that a king would come and rescue God's people. And so when they see this mysterious sign in the sky, some star out of place, and they've been wrestling through these prophecies of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9 and wrestling through the greatest of thought that they had of their day. They calculate out 490 years and they realize from the time of Daniel's prophecy, there's a way to do the math where these prophecies are, starting, are going to be fulfilled. So they see the star, they know the prophecy, and they head to Jerusalem. There's another reason to think that that might be the case is because one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, which would have been great, of great comfort to God's people in Babylon, was the story of Balaam and Numbers. You may remember the story of Balaam. It's mo he's most famous, this prophet, whose donkey actually spoke to him because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and Balaam doesn't. But you may remember Balaam is hired. He's actually, he's actually a, a prophet and priest from a land near Babylon, near modern-day Persia. He's, he's hired to actually come and give a curse upon God's people, but instead of cursing God's people, he actually sees the angel of the Lord and as a result decides to bless God's people, Balaam. And in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, we're told this. He prophesies this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here we have these magi who I, I think must be familiar with some of the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel was in their university, in their, their place of training. They must have some knowledge of these 70 weeks of seven. They also must be familiar with the ancient Old Testament books, the, the writings of the Jewish people, and exploring through numbers, knowing something that a star is going to come. A prophet who came from their land had, 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 had shown this to be true. And now they see the sign in the skies, and they travel some thousand kilometers through deserts, through treacherous uh, terrain. And they come and arrive first in Jerusalem because they know the prophecies. 
They know a king is going to come ultimately to rescue Israel and to be for the world a great judge. And they come to pay their homage to that king. Eventually, after they get to Jerusalem, they realize he won't be found here. And they find themselves in a little backwards town called Bethlehem. Now, what does all this mean? Here's what I'm trying to belabor the point to say. First, I I hope you see these magi differently after hearing this. But here's the point I'm trying to belabor, and it's, it's an obvious point. Look at the great lengths through which God will go to to bring those who are far off near. It's so clear. Years and years of prophecies that have sort of laid dormant, maybe could have been ignored, maybe disappeared. Stars in the sky. God speaks to these men through the language that they understand. Uses the stars, the thing that maybe they had way too mystical and, and sort of superstitious view of the stars. He uses these things to make himself known to them because this is the God who refuses to let the far stay far forever. In Jesus Christ and in his appearance, we're learning that the far will be brought very near. They are going to come oh so close. And we knew this would be the case. There was a season in which God's people were separated. But we knew on the last day, what do we read in Isaiah 2? We've been talking about it throughout the Advent season. On the last day, the mountain of the Lord will be established of the greatest of mountains, and all nations will stream to it. This will be the place where God dwells. And what we're reading is this is happening. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And now those who are far off can be brought near. The separation between Israel and the nations was temporary. But we knew from the promises to Abraham that Israel was going to be a blessing to all the nations. And now all who are far off are brought near. They're brought near because we have a God that will go to tremendous lengths that you might hear his word, that you might know his love, that you might be comforted by his strength. He's a God who goes to those who are far off, and he brings them near. The kids and I listen to a podcast from time to time. Not every episode is worth listening to, but one of the things they do in the podcast is it's some mix of counseling and historical journalism. They um, find people who have had things happen in their life that have brought about confusion and uncertainty in their life. And the, journal, the podcaster goes back and does research to figure out what really happened at that particular moment. So one of the stories the kids and I were listening to this week was an individual who was sort of the nerd of school. Uh, he says he was overweight and he had no friends. And he remembers uh, his last year of high school. The popular girl, the most beautiful girl, the girl who had all the friends, actually asked him to go to prom and badgered him when he said no and insisted that he go to prom. And this individual on the podcast has been some 15 years later. He's happily married. He's sort of a mature man in a stable career. But he still wonders, was that woman playing a joke on me? What happened all those years ago? Why did the beautiful woman come to me and take me to prom? And part of the story of the podcast is the podcaster goes back and finds this woman, and here's the backstory. And this guy finds out that he wasn't quite as nerdy as he thought he was. He's actually quite enjoyable to be around. And she wanted to go with him because it was more fun than going by herself. Anyway, why do I share this? Because the distance between the nerd and the beautiful woman, at least in his mind, was so inconceivably great that there's nothing he could do to try to convince her to go to prom with him, at least in his mind. He was too covered by shame. He was too embarrassed by who he was. He, didn't, he knew that he was not worthy to be with this girl at prom. And yet she makes the first move, something that would have been very foreign in this particular time and something strange. She initiates and moves towards him, and this is for him. Hey, Mark, of tremendously, uh, he, he's a changed man. He knows he has value he didn't have before. The shame that he bore for all these years, thinking this was a big joke or prank, it melts. 
And he begins to realize he's a more desirable person than he thought he was. Listen, in this story, what are we saying? We're saying that there are none of you that can run away so far. I mean, the earth is a globe. You're not going to fall off the edge. You can run and run and run, but eventually, he's going to take those who are the farthest away, and he's going to pursue them. No matter how much shame, embarrassment, disappointment, no matter how, much, how many sins you've committed, people you've wronged, evil things, even you've said toward God, there's nothing you could do to keep running away from this God because those who are far off are going to be brought near. You can run and run and run, but the globe's going to circle right back around. Those who are far off are going to be brought near. The birth of Jesus is telling us this is what God is doing in the world, and we know this through Christ. You can never be too far away. Your shame might tell you that you, you, you have no ability to pursue or move towards this God until maybe you clean up, until you lose weight, until you look better. Maybe then you could ask this God, to have fellowship with him. This passage is telling us that the most unthinkable thing has happened. God himself initiated the relationship. Moves the stars. The one who created the heavens and earth and sustains the heavens and earth reorients the stars so that these magi might know that those who are far off need to come near, might be brought near. I promise you he's doing it to some of you right now. You can't run away too much longer. He wants you to know that you are his child, you are accepted. He wants you to taste of the blessings that come in Christ. Yes, it involves repenting of your sins. Yes, it involves, as we confessed, saying that you've participated in wickedness. But listen, you can't keep running away. He is going to hunt you down. This story is all about those who are the furthest off. Priests of another religion, through a series of events orchestrated some 500 years earlier, being brought near. Those who are far off are brought near. Stop running. But let's also look at what's more scary in this passage, is that those who are near might end up being the most far away. Where do we see this? Well, this passage isn't just about the Magi. In fact, if you look through the passage, it has a lot more to do with King Herod. You can see him described in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod. How is Herod described? Herod the king. The Magi come to Jerusalem asking tough questions. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Now, Herod was nothing short of a paranoid psychopath. I mean, history is very clear about that. And you're going to learn a lot more about that next week when Lyndon preaches on Herod's actions. But Herod's paranoia and insecurity were perfect for Rome because they said this is the type of leader who will be a puppet leader that we can control, that will pay us whatever we need, that will, will do whatever we say. And this is why Julius Caesar appoints Herod to be the puppet leader over Judea, over Jerusalem at this time. Herod is famous for being paranoid, and he's a great distrust of his people. He kills his wife, kills several of his sons, kills multiple relatives, all fearing that they were conspiring against him. There's actually a funny uh, historical document where Julius Caesar said he would rather be Herod's pig. It's a play on words. His, his weiss, rather than his weiss, uh, he'd rather be Herod's pig than his son, saying that you have a better chance of surviving as Herod's pig than you do as Herod's son. Now, there's nothing wrong with Herod feeling a little bit worried that people are coming saying there is a new king in town. I don't know if you guys followed this week, this Prince Heinrich Thirteenth story of the House of Rice, this plot in Germany, uh, and many arrested for an attempt of a coup over democracy to reinstall a king. There's nothing wrong with being fearful of a king. That absolutely seems to undercut society as we know it. It seems to be a move in which we should be somewhat paranoid. There's, there's good reason to to be panicked when a new king is in town. But there's something interesting here that tells me Herod knows this isn't just a rival king. There's something bigger going on. And we see this by what the Magi say, because what do they say? What do they want to do for this king? They say, we saw his star in the sky, and we have come to what? To worship him. 
Now, if saying there was another king evoked utter paranoia of Herod, false worship in his land, the Jewish land, worshiping of a potential king, this should have absolutely perplexed Herod, confused Herod. How is there a new king, and why is no one worshiping me? Why is no one coming to bow down and prostrate and worship me? Why do they want to worship this king? This is why I'm convinced, as a side note, that the Magi must be wrestling through something of what we call Scripture, some of the Old Testament, because they know this king is a king worthy of worship. Herod knows he's in trouble. But what is concerning, we read in in verse 3, we read it again, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. But what else do we hear? All of Jerusalem with him. And then who does Herod get together? What, who does he rally up? His cabinet. What do they consist of? The chief priests and the scribes. And they want to know where this Christ is born. Now, these chief priests and scribes are professionals at knowing these Old Testament prophecies. They should know them far better than the Magi. And in fact, very quickly, they're able to derive, where is, where is the Christ going to be born? Well, he's going to be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. That's what Micah 5.2 sa- five, uh, says. He'll be born in Bethlehem, a few kilometers south of Jerusalem. Of course, he will be born there. But Herod, these chief priests, these scribes, they don't seem to have any interest in participating and following the Magi to see if this one who's born is worthy of worship because they are not looking for him. And in fact, they are so near that they can't see. They cannot see who he is. Herod asks, when does this star appear? Herod's not doing this to try to do his own calculations. The only calculation he's going to get is how many kids do I need to kill and what months, what year. We're going to learn about that next week. If Herod has to kill every infant in his land to protect his little kingdom, he's willing to do it. So Herod sends off the Magi. He says, listen, if you find him, you've got to come tell me. This is great news. I want to know. You know, if you go find, if you find this, this king who's worshipped, please come and tell me so I can join in and participate. The Magi are told in a dream not to go back to Herod. Now, why is it that Matthew leaves us this story? He wants us to see this, that in Jesus Christ, those who are far off are going to be brought near, and it's going to be your regular Christian experience, that you are going to be encouraged and stimulated and shocked by the fact that those who seem so far off are always being brought near. But Matthew also wants to give a strong warning, and he does this by using Herod's name, and by using the name of the chief priests and the scribes, the people who should be searching for the Messiah, who should be ready to worship him, Matthew wants you to know that those who are closest, those who should be on the highway, figuring out how they get to this child to offer worship, those who know all the prophecies, those who are not perplexed by how stars work out and how these things play out, they, in this passage, are the furthest away. They're the furthest away. Now, why is it that the closest are often the furthest away? This is going to be true in your Christian life as well. You may know it. Your parents converted, passionate for Jesus Christ, passionate to follow his ways. If you're the second generation, you know what that feels like, to grow up around the scriptures, to know all the commandments, to be able to recite the gospel so clearly, recite it in multiple languages, to know all the intra-workings of the gospel, but to become all too familiar with it. And to find yourself in a situation where you're sitting in a church service, dozing off, and you realize, I am so close, but I am so far away. I don't know about you, but I can remember a time, a time at a church gathering, 
where I was sitting there listening to his sermon. I thought it was the most boring thing in the world. I don't remember anything about it. We went off to lunch. I was ready to gripe about how uninteresting the pastor was. And the person next to me, his whole life was changed by something that was said. Never heard it before. Never had heard the details of the gospel this way. Life upended, totally changed. Those who are far off are going to be constantly brought near, but those who are close, you better watch it. You might end up being the one who's far away. Why is this? Well, I can't help but think that this passage is giving us a hint. That the way that sin works in our life is this. That the closer we become to God, the more that we are around these things and we become desensitized to the utter good news of them, the utter shock of them, the more that we see sin well up in our heart and we don't address it, the more we assume we're more righteous than the world out there, the more we assume we at least have our act together, at least good enough for God, the more we manicure and take God's commandments and his kingdom and we morph them in to commandments and ideas that work best for us, that are suitable for us, that keep our life comfortable. Our number one goal is to read the Bible and make sure we know that God still loves us and that we've got nothing to do. We can continue to live the exact life we do. We don't want to feel conviction anymore. That's hard work. And watch it. As soon as your heart gets there, as soon as you get to this place where you say, listen, I've got this Christianity thing figured out, and sort of chasing down how to obey God, changing my view, you know, changing how I understand these things, that is exhausting. I just want to have all the right answers, tick all the right boxes. Thank you very much. I could be the part of the team of good guys. I can receive that eternal award. This passage is telling us that there's a group of people who are just like that, the chief priests and the scribes, and they knew how to stay in power. They knew how to preserve their power and their comfort and their status in society, and they had a vested interest to make sure the scriptures did nothing to challenge that. And because of that, those who were the closest, those who should have been running to see this baby, those who have been, should have been spreading the news far and wide of his birth, end up becoming those who are the furthest away. You see, something happens in the Christian life. When you first join and follow after Christ, the first time you realize you have things you need to change in your life, and it hurts, and it stings, but you see the outcome of it, and you say, thanks be to God, I am a new person. I am so happy I turned away from that. I'm so happy I want nothing to do with that anymore. And over time, you start realizing that that paradigm that paradigm of realizing that you're not the person you're supposed to be, that you should be able to weakly say, I've been wicked. But that paradigm hurts, and it's not fun to live a reflective life. It's good to get the big ones taken care of, but the more you follow Christ, the more you realize that there's a lot more big ones than you realize. Sure, you've gotten rid of that heinous sin, but my goodness, my goodness, your envy is out of control, or your bitterness, your bitterness. And you look at these things and you say, well, they only exist in my thought life. They basically hurt no one. I can manage them. No big deal. Thanks be to God. He died for my sins. I'm fine. And you don't do business with these difficult sins in your life. And what ends up happening is a portion of your heart gets harder and harder and harder. And the principle bears out again that those who are the closest become the furthest away. I'm telling you as a pastor, I've seen it over and over and over again. Do you think these pastors that, that have recently ended up on the news for falling away just made one bad decision one day? No way! Years ago, they made a bad decision to, to quarantine off certain parts of their life they don't want touched. Their reputation, their status, their comfort, their pleasure. God, you can have everything, you can have all of me, except for this. This one's mine, and it's not that big a deal. God, thank you very much. I got the scripture verses to prove it. Those who are closest can become the furthest away. And this should be a tremendous, tremendous warning for you. 
As we think about the Christmas season dawning, as we think about the Christmas season coming, I hope this passage is a tremendous encouragement. If you have neighbors that seem way too far away, if you have relatives, maybe your own child, and you say that there's just no way the gospel is so, they are so far away from Christ. This passage says God will move stars to bring thinkers of a pagan religion to come to give proper worship to his king. If you want to be worried about something, if you want to wonder, if you want to, if you want to wrestle through, where's the power? This passage is also giving you a great warning. It's those who are closest which might prove to be the furthest away. Friends, we must take this seriously. The church in Canada, the decline over the past 50 years, is an obvious example of this principle. If it wasn't for mass immigration to this country, this, these, the church in Toronto especially would be a disaster. Those who are closest can be furthest away. Now, in conclusion, it's interesting. The Magi make it to the house. They, oh man, I've been long. They see this glorious star. They follow this pillar. They offer up three gifts. Gold, we understand why they offer up gold. It's a fitting gift for a king. Frankincense, this is an offering. This is, a, this is some sort of incense which would have been fitting for temple worship. And they offer up myrrh. And it's actually quite interesting. You can read biblical archaeological uh, journal articles and whatnot. There's a lot of mystery as to why do they offer up myrrh. And the next time in Matthew's Gospel we're going to learn about myrrh, you know when it comes in? Is when there's a sponge soaked while he's on the cross, and it's given to him as sort of a painkiller to sustain him as he's given his life on the cross. Here are these magi coming from the east. They provide all the finances so Jesus' family can flee to Egypt. They provide this gold so they can sustain Jesus in his life. So that though his, he and his father are a carpenter, he has, he has a massive fortune so that he can do what he needs to do as, as, uh, as, as this great king. They give him this incense showing that he rightly deserves worship, but they give to him myrrh, pain pills. I can't help but wonder if these men from the east knew that the servant was going to suffer greatly. That this great king who deserved all the worship was also going to be the suffering servant. And they come and they offer him gifts in accord with, they, with the calling they know that he has. Friends, Jesus Christ has come to this world as the great king, worthy of worship. He's come worthy of all of our gold, our frankincense. But he's come in need of myrrh as well. For his life will be one of betrayal, of pain, and ultimately he'll die on this cross and give of his life as this great gift. And it's in the cross that we will know that there is no one too far away, that can't be brought in. But it's also in the cross, as people who had just gathered in worship, people who participated regularly in the temple, jeer him. Those who are close can be furthest away. Let this be a warning. Let this be an encouragement this Christmas season. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ we thank you for moving the stars so that these magi could find him. We thank you that at the end of Matthew's gospel, you're going to send your disciples out to, to disciple all nations. We thank you for your great love and that you brought each and every one of us in, that we could have been far away. Sustain us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.